Good afternoon. So good to see so many of you today. If you have a Bible, please get ready to turn to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm chapter 22. If you want to understand how Christ's suffering perfected salvation for all who would trust in Him, you need to look no further than our psalm this afternoon. For as Charles Spurgeon says of this psalm, Psalm 22, this is beyond all others the psalm of the cross. The psalm of the cross. We're continuing our series, Summer in the Psalms, and we'll be covering chapters 21 through 30 in the third year of our 15-year intermittent study. And each year we return to this summer series. I encourage all of our members to read through the entire book of the Psalms. So if you started with us last Monday, you should be about 10 to 15 chapters in. If you have not started with 15 days to go in the month of June, you only need to read 3.3 chapters from Monday to Friday, just the weekdays, and you can catch up to reading two to three chapters in the months of July and August. I would love for all of our church members to grow in our familiarity with the Psalms, the hymn book of God's people, which have been sung of God's people for generations, and I pray that we would grow to be better lamenters and praisers of God. Amen? Well, perhaps no better psalm than Psalm 22 that shows us the connection of how, because of the Messiah King, mourners, lamenters, can turn into worshipers of God. As we'll see, this psalm expresses the psalmist's unparalleled pain, which turns to unhindered praise of God, of Yahweh. Which makes us think, which of David's travails does this unmatched suffering described by the psalm align? Perhaps when David was fleeing from Saul in 1 Samuel 19 through 30, or from Absalom in 2 Samuel 15 through 17. But we are hard pressed to find any episode in the great king's life quite as traumatic as the one depicted here. Neither the experiences of Saul or Absalom describe the intensity and the specific details, especially from verses 12 to 18 surpass anything that David is recorded to have experienced. When the exposure of his adultery and murder really abased him, David was crushed by guilt, but not by these kinds of bone-disjointing affliction and ravening insults and scorning. As modern interpreters of the psalm attempt to find a setting for them, as James Montgomery Boyce writes, it is impossible to do this with this psalm. There's just no way around it. Psalm 22 is a description of an execution, particularly crucifixion. In fact, Boy says of this psalm, it is the best description in all of the Bible of Jesus Christ's crucifixion. And to support this claim, if you see the psalm as a chiasm, we've been talking about chiasm, the structure of the psalm, you'll see that verses 15 and 16 is the central emphasis of the psalm, speaking of him being pierced in his hands and his feet. Well, get this. Crucifixion was not even practiced in the time of David or for many long centuries afterward. So this is not an account of suffering endured by any ancient person, namely David, but it is a prophetic picture of the suffering to be endured by Jesus the Messiah when he died on the cross to pay for the penalty of our sins nearly 1,000 years before Jesus was even born. In other words, Psalm 22 is a prophetic psalm, an entirely messianic psalm. 
Furthermore, another commentator, Derek Kidner, who is usually cautious in such matters, nevertheless confirms, no incident recorded of David can begin to account for this. The language of the psalm defies a naturalistic explanation. The best account is in the terms used by Peter concerning another psalm of David, as according to Acts 2.30. David, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the Christ. But not only that, it's not only David that prophetically foresaw and spoke of Jesus' sufferings. This is also the very psalm in which Jesus himself meditated on as he was hanging on the cross, as he was being crucified. Hence, what were the figurative expressions of David's sufferings became the literal sufferings of Jesus the Christ. Well, how does Psalm 22 point us to the sufferings of Christ and teach us how His substitute sacrifice for sins wins for us, grants us sufficient salvation. So from Psalm 22, I want to share with you two reasons Christ's sufferings became our salvations. Two reasons Christ's suffering became our salvation. Two points. Point number one, the sufferers trust. The sufferers trust from verses 1 through 21. And point number two, the sufferers praise from verses 22 through 31. Trust and praise. Brothers and sisters, I pray this message will encourage you anew that our suffering Savior died so that you and I can live to worship our great God. Amen? I pray this word will remind you again that even in the direst moments of our lives, there is unshakable hope because Jesus, our Messiah. Even in our darkest despondency, even in our deepest depression, Jesus is the light that shines into the most hopeless of situations. I pray through this sermon, your mourning will turn to rejoicing because of him today. Guests and visitors, if you are here and you do not consider yourself to be a Christian, welcome. We're so glad that you are here joining us for our Sunday gathering today. We've been praying for you, praying for you specifically that God would lead you here this afternoon to hear his words of invitation and salvation. We pray that you would consider the words that you hear carefully, that in Jesus Christ there is indeed certain hope and true forgiveness and amazing grace, abundant grace and unconditional love offered to you if you would repent and trust in him. So without further ado, let's turn to his words, which can be found on page 457 and 458 of the Blue Bibles around you. And let me please encourage you, please keep your Bibles open and follow along for the entire duration of the message as I read and preach, so that you know that this is God's word for you to build you up and to strengthen your faith in him. Psalm chapter 22 says this, to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, 
scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the mother's womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Amen. How does Christ's sufferings become our salvation? Point number one, because of the sufferer's trust. From verses 1 through 21. The first observation we can make is, in addition to the similar headings from the previous psalm, from Psalm 21, to the choir master, and a psalm of David, the phrase, according to the doe of the dawn, which is likely the melody used for the psalm, is included. Obviously, we have lost the tune, and perhaps maybe in heaven we may hear it again. But until then, what we know is that such melody existed, according to the doe of the dawn. Now, many Bible interpreters have tried to make something more significant of this phrase in the heading, and as such, speculation cannot be proven. So just know, this was a psalm sung by God's people to the tune of the doe of the dawn, and a psalm of David, either written by David or something about David. Regarding the structure of the psalm, the most important and most noticeable feature of verses 1 through 21 is the alternating pattern of thought in six sections. So look with me. Verses 1 through 2, 3 through 5, 6 through 8, 9 through 11, 12 through 18, and 19 through 21, where the odd sets, the first, third, and fifth, 
verses 1 and 2, 6 and 8, 12 to 18 describe the author's suffering, and the even sets, the second, fourth, and sixth, verses 3 through 5, this is really interesting, you've got to look at your Bibles, don't look at me, 9 through 11, and 19 through 21 are prayers to God. Odd sets are the author's sufferings. The even sets are prayers to God. And you see how these sections, uh, these prayers are marked by the words in verse 3, yet you. In verse 9, yet you. In verse 19, but you. The focus is on God, isn't it? The suffering one of the psalm is expressing his pain to God and looking to him and remembering his trust of him. So you see three cycles of complaints and confidence, complaints and confidence, complaints and confidence. Three cycles of them. Notice how many times the word trust is written in this section, which is where I got the first point. Five times. It's the theme of the section. The sufferer's trust. The sufferer is trusting on God. Amen? And you'll notice as the pattern progresses, the intensity of the anguish decreases. At least it becomes more physical rather than spiritual and psychological. And the author's confidence in God increases and strengthens as he remembers who God is. So brothers and sisters, what this psalm is modeling for us, even just from the structure of it, no matter what dire affliction you may be experiencing in your life as a Christian, prayer to God leads us to peace and to praise of God. Amen? Prayer to God leads us to peace and praise of God. Consider your situation or your circumstances. Perhaps you are showing up today with lots of anxiety, lots of fears, whatever you're going through. And I want to ask you, are you praying to God in trust? As Spurgeon says, prayer is the never-failing response of the Christian. In any case, in any plight, when you cannot use your sword, you may take up the weapon of prayer. Your powder may be damp, your bowstring may be relaxed, but the weapon of prayer need never be out of order. Satan laughs at the javelin, but he trembles at prayer. Swords and spears need to be sharpened, but prayers never rusts. Prayer is an open door that no one can shut. Well, let's look more closely now to the words. Verses 1 and 2 presents the most poignant words of the entire psalm. They are the most disturbing words described of the suffering psalmist experience. Three times he cries out to God, My God! My God! Oh, my God! The suffering one believes that he has been forsaken by God and asks why he has been forsaken, why God is seemingly so distant, why God is so deaf to his cries, why God offers no rest from his misery. Now, as I said, these verses are so important because we see in Matthew 27, 46, Jesus himself recites these words as he's being crucified on the cross, as three hours of darkness came over the earth. These were private hours where Jesus, having been disowned by all, Jesus enters the way of suffering alone and deserted and forsaken in utter darkness. It was as if God had shut the doors of heaven upon Jesus so that what transpired during those hours happened between himself and Jesus alone. And Jesus cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus himself is meditating on the words of Psalm 20 in the lowest and the darkest moment of his life. And he sees himself as the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy. Jesus is the suffering psalmist. He is the substitute sacrifice under the judgment of God. Every detail of this horrific abandonment declares the heinous character of our sin. As scripture says, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So you could just imagine the weight that Jesus was carrying and experiencing when the weight of the world, the judgment of God, the wrath of God was placed on him. It was the just punishment for the sin of Christ's people that Jesus himself was bearing. Now the idea that Jesus could be forsaken by God has perturbed so many people that various theories have been invented to explain it. Some have alleged that Jesus was referencing the psalm only to call attention to it, as if to say what he was suffering was what the psalm describes. Others argue that Jesus only felt forsaken, when in fact he was not. Well, it is true that Jesus was not ultimately forsaken. After all, that is what the second half of this very psalm is about. He was not forsaken, ultimately. God does answer the cries of the psalmist. The prophecy of the suffering one is fulfilled in Jesus the Christ. Christ was indeed forsaken in order that his chosen, the repentant and trusting, may never be forsaken. Jesus was forsaken so that we would not be forsaken. Hence the postulate that Jesus merely felt forsaken by God or merely recalled such emotions from the psalm is unbiblical. Jesus was indeed forsaken by God while he bore the sins of his people on the cross. This is the very essence of the atonement that Christ offered for us. According to Boyce, again, Jesus bore our hell in order that we might share his heaven. Jesus bore our hell in order that we might share his heaven. Jesus was rejected so repentant sinners like you and I can be accepted. Amen? Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it this way. God has made his son the sacrifice. It is a substitutionary offering for your sins and mine. That's why he was there in the garden sweating drops of blood because he knew what it involved. It involved a separation from the face of the Father, according to Deuteronomy 31, 17 and Psalm 27, 9. And that's why he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everyone else had forsaken him. His disciples had left. And he reaches the point wherein even he has lost sight of the face and the smile of his own father. And he experienced that. Why? For you and for me. Close quote. Perhaps the bigger question is how could this happen? How could one member of the eternal trinity, one in essence, turn his back on another member of the trinity? Simply, we don't know. We can't explain it. As the hymn writer says, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. But we see God's forsaking of the suffering one is not final. The psalmist, though in utter agony and darkness, looks up to God, doesn't he? And he remembers God's character. Despite his circumstances, despite his experience, he remembers who God is by claiming By declaring, yet you, yet you. The grammatical form is an emphatic you. The psalmist says, this is my condition. This is how I feel, yet you. Look at verses 3 through 5. It says this. 
Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. The psalmist cried out to God, My God, my God, my God. And in a contrasting threefold reference of the Father's trust of Him, the psalmist remembers that God is holy, that He is set apart and unlike any other, that He is worthy of worship as the sovereign and righteous King enthroned on the praises of His people. And the psalmist remembers God's faithfulness to the fathers, how they trusted Him. Notice this, and trusted Him, and how He delivered them, how they cried out to Him and He rescued them, how they trusted in Him and they were not put to shame. The repetitions, trusted, 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 delivered, rescued, and not put to shame are meant to drive a point. He believes Yahweh is worthy to be trusted. He believes that Yahweh is powerful and able to save. Amen? In you, in you, our fathers, trusted, trusted, trusted. He has done it in the past, and though the psalmist does not petition him, yet he hopes, he believes in God's deliverance of him. In the next verse is an extreme contrast from who God is to who the psalmist was as he was forsaken by God. Look at verses 6 through 8. Yet you, but I, am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Listen, God is holy. He knows that. God is enthroned. He knows that. God is the deliverer. He knows that. But I, says the psalmist, I am a worm and not a man. The psalmist is using drastic language to express his feelings of being less than human. His sense of human dignity was lost literally when it seemed that God is absent and that everyone, people have rejected him left and right. God is holy and receives the praise of Israel, but the psalmist is the object of scorn and mockery. Now David may have been a recipient of these scorns and mocking for trusting in the Lord in his lifetime, but we also know that these very words, as well as the gestures, were reproduced precisely to the nth degree at the crucifixion of Jesus. So in Matthew 27, 39 through 40, it reads this, And those who passed by him wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. You see, the very words of Psalm 22, verse 7 and verse 8 are spoken by Christ's enemies and fulfilled through him. In verses 9 through 11, the psalmist recalls again, 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 God's character and faithfulness. It is as if the more the psalmist feels the torment and the agony of forsakenness by God and the people, the more intimate truths of God's character he recalls to mind. This time, God's faithfulness, not only his father's, but God's faithfulness to himself, he recalls. Yet you, yet you are he who took me from the womb, 
You made me trust you and my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Brothers and sisters, what an incredible lesson this psalm teaches us today. In our deepest and most desperate discouragements and depression, the truth and promise of God's sovereign election. He has chosen you and I from before the foundation of the world, according to John 17, 24, 1 Peter 1, 20. Amen? He has chosen us from before the foundation of the world. Hallelujah. We can just end the sermon right there and praise God that he has chosen you and chosen me because of Christ. This brings to mind a pastor friend of mine, Peter, who recently lost his wife and a mother of their three children to breast cancer a few months ago. In his deep grieving and mourning, my friend tweets the words of Lamentations 3.22 over and over and over again, every single day, multiple times a day. And he writes these notes as a preface. No matter what you are facing today or what you will face, do not be discouraged by your circumstances. Brothers and sisters, may we not forget. Take heart, my friends, for this much is true. These words of Lamentations 3, 21 through 26, which says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the soul who seeks Him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. This brother tweets this word, Lamentations 3.22, every single day. This I hope, this I call to mind, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you this question. How do you cope in days of deep distress? How do you survive in a world of dark depravity? Have you seen some of the stuff that are going on in our nation today? It's scary. It's discouraging. Do you recall to mind the truth of who God is and cling to the only hope that is real and tangible in Him? Upon such truth, the psalmist pleads in verse 11, Be not far from me, for trouble is near. Trouble is so close. Trouble is pressing in and there is none to help. Well, how will God answer his prayer? We'll soon see it in our psalm. But the good news is only good news, isn't it? Because we see why we need it. We need to come to see why the good news is good news. And so bad news necessarily shows why the good news is good news. And so comes the next verses of the psalm, verses 12 to 18, which is the most striking section of the psalm. Crucifixion seems to be the most specifically and remarkably portrayed and addressed in these verses. And to explain this section, I'm going to borrow the words of C.I. Schofield from the Schofield Reference Bible, and I quote, Psalm 22 is a graphic picture of death by crucifixion the profuse perspiration caused by intense suffering as he is poured out like water, the bones of hands, arms, shoulders, and pelvis out of joint, according to verse 14, strength exhausted and extreme thirst, according to verse 15, the hands and the feet pierced, according to verse 16, stripped naked and ashamed, 
with a hurt to modesty, according to verse 17. These descriptions are all associated with that mode of death, with crucifixion. The accompanying circumstances are precisely those fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ. The desolate cry of verse 1, coinciding with Matthew 27, 46. The periods of light and darkness of verse 2, coinciding with Matthew 27, 45. The contemptuous and humiliating treatment of verses 6 through 8 and 12 through 13, coinciding with Matthew 27, 29 through 44. The casting of lots in verse 18, coinciding with Matthew 27, 35, were all literally, it actually happened in history through Jesus Christ, fulfilled. When it is remembered that crucifixion was a Roman and not a Jewish form of execution, the proof of biblical inspiration is undeniable. Close quote. In other words, brothers and sisters, you can't deny what this is. These words are words of messianic prophecy. More than that, this is the mystery of God's redemption plan revealed through Jesus Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming curse for us, as according to Galatians 3.13. That's why the psalmist looks to Yahweh and points us to Him once again. This is God's sovereign plan. This is God's divine design. I don't understand it. I can't see beyond it. But no matter what, no matter the circumstance, no matter how grave the danger, no matter how deep and dark my depression, this promise of Psalm 30, 1 through 3 is true in light of Psalm 22. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you helped me. You healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. That is the promise that we have because of Christ. We can cling to that truth. We can cling to that promise because of Christ. In verses 19 through 21, it's the turning point of the psalm in recalling who God is, in recalling God's faithfulness to the former generations, in recalling God's faithfulness to himself, the sufferer's trust in God is renewed. Communion with God is restored. And we'll see how the sufferer's praise is revived. So look at verses 19 through 21. It says this. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. You see faith arising here in these words, right? My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. See those words again, the emphatic but you contrasting. This is the whole of the Christian faith, brothers and sisters, that salvation is wholly, entirely the work of God from start to finish. Salvation is wholly and thoroughly the work of God from start to finish, from top to bottom, from beginning to end, from death to life, from tragedy to triumph, from depravity to glory, from lamenting to praise. It is solely and wholly the work of God. Hallelujah. The key of the entire psalm is in verse 21. CSB translation is the most accurate on this verse. It should actually read, if you translate it rightly from the original language, save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. And that phrase at the end, you answered me. The verb for save me in the original literally means in this verse, you have heard. Listen, as the psalmist has suffered, as the psalmist has been forsaken, as the psalmist has borne the curse for our sins on the cross, 
as the psalmist has trusted and trusted and trusted against all odds, my God, my God, my God, as Jesus proved himself a thousand years later to be the new and greater David, the promised offspring and the prophesied Messiah King in whom perfect salvation would come to and through, this psalm is not the Messiah's cry of despair, but of trust and of triumph. God has heard and answered Christ's petition, save me, deliver me, and rescue me. And in Him, brothers and sisters, we too are saved and delivered and rescued from the dogs and the lions and the horns of the wild oxen, from God's enemies, from sin, from Satan, from death, and from its powers. Hallelujah. You have answered me. That's the turning point. Dear brothers and sisters, let me say it again. Because Christ was forsaken, we will never be forsaken by God the Father. Because Christ was rejected, we will never be rejected by Him. Some of you guys need to believe that today. Because Christ was forsaken, we, you, will never be forsaken. You will never be rejected. Jesus says in Matthew 28, here's a promise you need to write down and memorize. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen? So dear beloved, in your suffering, do you have the psalmist trust? Though it may be true, you are in the lowliest of state, lowliest of circumstance. Though it may seem you are at the bottom of your rung, do you cast your eyes on him? Do you declare your trust of him? Yet you, yet you, but you. Is that your prayer? Although on this side of heaven, circumstances of our lives may not change entirely. In Christ, we can know and experience peace and rest and have certain hope that ultimately we will be delivered from this present evil age when Christ returns to bring us home with him. So what does the sufferer who trusts in Christ's finished work look like? That's the next point. How does Christ's sufferings become our salvation? Point number two, the sufferer's praise from verses 22 through 31. You'll see the tone of the psalm has entirely changed. The psalmist now celebrates the great victory of the cross. God has heard. God has answered. God has delivered. And now his trust turns to praise, doesn't it? The word praise is cited no less than four times in this section. The word worship is cited at least two times. Other phrases explain it. Glorify him. Stand in awe of him also are cited. The verbs tell of him, told of him, and proclaim him are also prominent in these verses. You can see that worship and praise of Yahweh are the themes of this section. Lament has turned to praise. Mourning has turned to worship. Well, I want to keep this point simple because point one was longer than usual. So two main things about these verses and what it teaches us. Who will praise him and what we will praise him for? Who will praise him and what we will praise him for? First, who will praise him? If you look at verses 22 through 24, it shows us that brothers will praise God in the midst of the congregation. The psalmist is referring to ethnic Israel. You'll see that by the phrase in verse 23, all you offspring of Jacob and all you offspring of Israel, it does not include most of us, unless you are of the ethnic heritage of Israel. Psalm 22, 22 is quoted by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 2, verse 12, referring the verse to Jesus. In the Hebrews account, 
in this most important chapter of Hebrews, the author is teaching the superiority of Jesus. Jesus is superior because he is God's son and not merely a servant. Jesus is superior because he has been appointed ruler of an everlasting kingdom. All things are subjected to him. But having shown Jesus' superiority over all creation, the author of Hebrews shows that Jesus has also become the savior of his people by becoming like them and making them members of his own family. This is where Psalm 22, 22 is quoted in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, which says this, For it was fitting that he, for whom, by and whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell you your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. But as this great plan of God's redemption was promised and unfolded in series, according to Acts 1, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, the story of the suffering one's trust and praise of God not only remains within the Jews, but is expanded to the ends of the earth. That's what we see in verses 25 through 29. Look at verse 27. All the nations of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship you. So first to the Jews, and then to the Gentiles. But still, it doesn't include you and me. Well, thank goodness it doesn't end there. Psalm 22 prophesies that the praise of the suffering one will expand to future generations. Simply, Christianity did not stop in the first century, but expanded to today. In the 21st century, that's verse 30. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. Brothers and sisters, I hope you are praising God with me now upon these verses that by God's amazing grace, the suffering Savior's forsaking and salvation included us who are born 20 centuries later. We are mentioned in verse 31, aren't we? They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. The Jews, the Gentiles, and to the future generations, including you and me, hallelujah. So that was the who. Well, to conclude, what shall we all all of us together praise him for? It can all be summarized by the final phrase of this psalm. A Hebrew rendering of one of Jesus the Messiah's final words. Tetelestai. It is finished. You see that final phrase there? He has done it. It's one word in Hebrew. Asa. Done deal. That's what it means. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear. That as according to Romans 8, 3, and 4, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Jesus, the prophesied Messiah, lived a sinless life that we could not live. Die the sacrificial death that we should have died. Suffer the substitute death we would have suffered in eternal hell. For our sake, he was forsaken, that he might pay the penalty of our sins once and for all. Sins of the past, present, and future. Yet God, but God, heard and answered Jesus' prayer for deliverance 
and raised him back to life on the third day. And Jesus ascended into heaven to take his rightful place as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he offers us new life and eternal life to anyone who would look to him, to anyone who would look to him and trust in him. So friends and visitors, if you are here and you are not a Christian, don't delay. Don't hesitate. He is the only sinless one, the only one able to bear our sin, the only one forsaken for your sake who suffered in your place. There is no one else who came. There is no one else who is coming to offer you salvation. Repent of your sins today. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you. Trust in him with your whole life today and forevermore. The pastors of this church would love to talk to you. If you have any questions about how you can follow Jesus at the close of service at the back doors, or if you want to talk to somebody smiling next to you, we've been praying for you, that you would come, that you would hear, that we may be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ with you. Don't hesitate to talk to any of us more about how you can follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm concluding, I'm finishing up. Why should we as sufferers trust and praise our God? Because Christ showed us the way to remember him, to remember his faithfulness, to remember his sovereign promise. But more importantly, simply because he has done it. To tell us die. It is finished. He has not despised or abhorred the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him. He has heard his cries. So may we praise him. May we eat and be satisfied in seeking him. May we honor him as king. May we bow down before him. May we serve him and tell of him to the coming generations. May we proclaim his righteousness until our dying breath. Amen? He has done it. He has done it. We get to rejoice. We get to praise him for it. It is finished. Let's pray. Father, thank you that even in the darkest and deepest sorrows and affliction, Christ held on. Christ remembered your promise. Christ hoped and trusted in you. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is gracious and merciful and heard our prayers for deliverance through Christ. Father, we thank you that you heard his words. You saw his pain, that you did not ultimately forsake him so that we may not be forsaken as well. Father, we cling to the promise and the hope that we have in Christ alone, that though this world is dark and depraved, in Christ we have hope. In Christ we have a reason to rejoice. In Christ we can hope. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for this promise. We rejoice in you. We worship you. We praise you. You are worthy of all our praises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.